What could two leaves possibly have to say to each other? Felix Salton, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener-supported. If you enjoy listening to the Classic Tales, please consider becoming a supporting member. It helps support the podcast, and it's a great way to build out your library of classics. By making a monthly donation of just $5, you'll receive a corresponding thank you code for an $8 discount off any audiobook order. Donate $10 a month or more, and you get a $17 discount. You win, and we get to keep going strong. Go now to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a member today. We'd like to thank Spotify for being a partnering sponsor. Thank you for your patience over the last little while. I'm scheduled to have some new releases coming soon to the website, so please keep an eye open for some new titles. Now, if you're dying for some horror stories during Halloween season, app users can discover a scary story in the special features during the month of October. This week, we feature The Burned House by Vincent O'Sullivan. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius will continue in November. In today's episode of Bambi, things get pretty real, especially in the last chapter. It might be upsetting to younger listeners, so keep an ear open for that. Also in today's episode, the deer run into some elk. Now, in the Disney movie, I thought that Bambi was the chosen one and a prince among deer. But in the original book, the adult deer are considered princes and the adult elk are kings. Bambi is awed by the elk calling to each other in the night. Sultan's description of the elk call is brilliant. Here's what a wild elk call sounds like, in case you've never heard one. Our personal moment comes along with the moment in Bambi today. In Chapter 8, there's a conversation between two leaves. I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces I've ever recorded. When I had my very brief stint in college, I took a storyboarding class because I wanted to go into animation. And my professor mentioned that the important thing is for the script to be produced in the medium that makes the most sense. He had a real issue with animated films that didn't need to be animated. It's all humans talking. Why are we animating this? When I recorded Chapter 8... And I had that moment when I was finished realizing, wow, this is really great. It struck me that this experience of listening to the author's original text and having this moment here could only really be delivered through either reading the book yourself or through an audiobook. It just wouldn't work if it was animated or narrated with animation. It's, I think the most intimate, the most real, and the most true to the original material. So I'm really excited for today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. And now, Bambi, part two of four, 
by Felix Salton. Chapter 6 Bambi was often alone now, but he was not so troubled about it as he had been the first time. His mother would disappear, and no matter how much he called to her, she wouldn't come back. Later she would appear unexpectedly and stay with him as before. One night he was roaming around quite forlorn again. He could not even find Gobo and Feline. The sky had become pale gray, and it began to darken so that the treetops seemed like a vault over the bushy undergrowth. There was a swishing in the bushes. A loud rustling came through the leaves, and Bambi's mother dashed out. Someone else raced close behind her. Bambi did not know whether it was Aunt Ina, or his father, or someone else, but he recognized his mother at once. Though she rushed past him so quickly, he had recognized her voice. She screamed, and it seemed to Bambi as if it were in play, though he thought it sounded a little frightened, too. One day Bambi wandered for hours through the thicket. At last he began to call. He simply couldn't bear to be so utterly lonely any more. He felt that pretty soon he'd be perfectly miserable, so he began to call for his mother. Suddenly one of the fathers was standing in front of him, looking sternly down at him. Bambi hadn't heard him coming and was terrified. This stag looked more powerful than the others, taller and prouder. His coat shone with a deeper, richer red. But his face shimmered, silvery gray, and tall, black, beaded antlers rose high above his nervous ears. What are you crying about? the old stag asked severely. Bambi trembled in awe and did not dare answer. Your mother has no time for you now, the old stag went on. Bambi was completely dominated by his masterful voice, and at the same time he admired it. Can't you stay by yourself? Shame on you! Bambi wanted to say that he was perfectly able to stay by himself, and that he had often been left alone already, but he could not get it out. He was obedient, and he felt terribly ashamed. The stag turned around and was gone. Bambi didn't know where or why, or whether the stag had gone slow or fast. He had simply gone as suddenly as he had come. Bambi strained his ears to listen, but he could not catch the sound of a departing footstep or a leaf stirring. So he thought the old stag must be somewhere close by, and snuffed the air in all directions. It brought him no scent. Bambi sighed with relief to think he was alone. But he felt a lively desire to see the old stag again and win his approval. When his mother came back, he did not tell her anything of his encounter. He did not call her any more either the next time she disappeared. He thought of the old stag while he wandered around. He wanted very much to meet him. He wanted to say to him, See? I don't call my mother any more, so the old stag would praise him. But he told Gobo and Feline the next time they were together on the meadow. They listened attentively, and had nothing to relate that could compare with this. Weren't you frightened? asked Gobo excitedly. Oh, well. Bambi confessed he had been frightened, 
but only a little. I should have been terribly frightened, Gobo declared. Bambi replied no, he hadn't been very much afraid, because the stag was so handsome. That wouldn't have helped me much, Gobo added. I'd have been too afraid to look at him. When I'm frightened, I have streaks before my eyes so that I can't see at all, and my heart beats so fast that I can't breathe. Feline became very thoughtful after Bambi's story and did not say anything. But the next time they met, Gobo and Feline bounded up in great haste. They were alone again, and so was Bambi. We have been hunting for you all this time, cried Gobo. Yes, Feline said importantly, because now we know who it was you saw. Bambi bounded into the air for curiosity and asked, Who? Feline said solemnly, It was the old prince. Who told you that? Bambi demanded. Mother, Feline replied. Bambi was amazed. Did you tell her the whole story? They both nodded. Because it was a secret, Bambi cried angrily. Gobo tried to shield himself at once. I didn't do it. It was Feline, he said. But Feline cried excitedly. What do you mean a secret? I wanted to know who it was. Now we all know, and it's much more exciting. Bambi was burning up with desire to hear all about it and let himself be mollified. Feline told him everything. The old prince is the biggest stag in the whole forest. There isn't anybody else that compares with him. Nobody knows how old he is. Nobody can find out where he lives. No one knows his family. Very few have seen him even once. At times he was thought to be dead because he hadn't been seen for so long. Then... Someone would see him again for a second, and so they knew he was still alive. Nobody had dared ask him where he had been. He speaks to nobody, and no one dares speak to him. He uses trails none of the others ever use. He knows the very depths of the forest, and he does not know such a thing as danger. Other princes fight one another at times, sometimes in fun, or try each other out, sometimes in earnest. For many years, no one has fought with the old stag and of those who fought with him long ago, not one is living. He is the great prince. Bambi forgave Gobo and Feline for blabbing his secret to their mother. He was even glad to have found out all these important things. But he was glad that Gobo and Feline did not know all about it. They did not know that the great prince had said, Can't you stay by yourself? Shame on you! Now Bambi was very glad that he had not told them about these things, for then Gobo and Feline would have told that, along with the rest, and the whole forest would have gossiped about it. That night, when the moon rose, Bambi's mother came back again. He suddenly saw her standing under the great oak at the edge of the meadow, looking around for him. He saw her right away and ran to her. That night Bambi learned something new. His mother was tired and hungry. They did not walk as far as usual. The mother quieted her hunger on the meadow, where Bambi, too, was used to eating most of his meals. Side by side, they nibbled at the bushes and, pleasantly ruminating, went farther and farther into the woods. Presently there was a loud rustling in the bushes, 
Before Bambi could guess what it was, his mother began to cry aloud as she did when she was very terrified, or when she was beside herself. Oh! she cried, and giving a bound, stopped and cried, Oh! Bo! Bambi tried to make out the mighty forms which were drawing near, as the rustling grew louder. They were right near now. They resembled Bambi and Bambi's mother, Aunt Ina and all the rest of his family. But they were gigantic, and so powerfully built that he stared up at them, overcome. Suddenly Bambi began to bleat, Ah! Bo! Bo! He hardly knew he was bleeding. He couldn't help himself. The procession tramped slowly by. Three, four, giant apparitions, one after the other. The last of them was bigger than any of the others. He had a wild mane on his neck, and his antlers were tree-like. It took Bambi's breath away to see them. He stood and bleated from a heart full of wonder, for he was more weirdly affected than ever before in his life. He was afraid, but in a peculiar way. He felt how pitifully small he was, and even his mother seemed to him to have shrunk. He felt ashamed without understanding why, and at the same time terror shook him. He bleated, Bo! Bo! He felt better when he bleated that way. The procession had gone by. There was nothing more to be seen or heard. Even his mother was silent. Only Bambi kept giving short bleats now and then. He still felt the shock. Be still, his mother said. They have gone now. Oh, mother, Bambi whispered. Who was it? Well, said his mother, they are not so dangerous when all is said and done. Those are your big cousins, the elk. They are strong, and they are important far stronger than we are. And aren't they dangerous? Bambi asked. Not as a rule, his mother explained. Of course, a good many things are said to have happened. This and that is told about them. But I don't know if there is any truth in such gossip or not. They've never done any harm to me or to any one of my acquaintances. Why should they do anything to us? asked Bambi if they are cousins of ours. He wanted to feel calm, but he kept trembling. Oh, they never do anything to us, his mother answered. But I don't understand why I'm frightened whenever I see them. I don't understand it myself, but it happens that way every time. Bambi was gradually reassured by her words, but he remained thoughtful. Right above him, in the branches of an alder, the screech owl was hooting in his blood-curdling way. Bambi was distracted and forgot to act as if he had been frightened. But the screech owl flew by anyhow and asked, Didn't I frighten you? Of course, Bambi replied. You always frighten me. The screech owl chuckled softly. He was pleased. I hope that you don't hold it against me, he said. It's just my way. He fluffed himself up so that he resembled a ball, sank his bill in his foamy white feathers, and put on a terribly wise and serious face. He was satisfied with himself. Bambi poured out his heart to him. Do you know, he began slyly, I've just had a much worse fright. <laughs> Indeed, 
said the owl, displeased. Bambi told him about his encounter with his giant relations. Don't talk to me about relations, the owl exclaimed. I've got relations, too, but I only fly around in the daytime, so they are all down on me now. No, there isn't much use in relations. If they're bigger than you are, they're no good to you, and if they're smaller, they're worth still less. If they're bigger than you, you can't bear them because they're proud, and if they're smaller, they can't bear you because you're proud. Now, I prefer to have nothing to do with the whole crowd. But I don't even know my relations, Bambi said laughing shyly. I never heard of them. I never saw them before today. Don't bother about such people, the screech owl advised. Believe me, and he rolled his eyes significantly. Believe me, it's the best way. Relatives are never as good as friends. Look at us. We're not related in any way, but we're good friends, and that's much better. Bambi wanted to say something else, but the screech owl went on. I've had experience with such things. You are still too young, but believe me, I know better. Besides, I don't like to get mixed up in family affairs. He rolled his eyes thoughtfully and looked so impressive with his serious face that Bambi kept a discreet silence. Chapter 7 Another night passed, and morning brought an event. It was a cloudless morning, dewy and fresh. All the leaves on the trees and the bushes seemed suddenly to smell sweeter. The meadows sent up great clouds of perfume to the treetops. Peep, said the titmice when they awoke. They said it very softly. But since it was still grey dawn, they said nothing else for a while. For a time it was perfectly still. Then a crow's hoarse, rasping caw sounded far above in the sky. The crows had awakened and were visiting one another in the treetops. The magpie answered at once, Shack-a-rack, Shack! Did you think I was still asleep? Then a hundred small voices started in very softly here and there. Peep-peep-tew! Sleep and the dark were still in these sounds, and they came from far apart. Suddenly a blackbird flew to the top of a beech, she perched way up on the topmost twig that stuck up thin against the sky and sat there, watching how, far away over the trees, the night-weary pale gray heavens were glowing in the distant east and coming to life. Then she commenced to sing. Her little black body seemed only a tiny dark speck at that distance. She looked like a dead leaf but she poured out her song in a great flood of rejoicing through the whole forest, and everything began to stir. The finches warbled. The little redthroat from the goldfinch were heard. The doves rushed from place to place with a loud clapping and rustling of wings. The pheasants cackled as though their throats would burst. The noise of their wings as they flew from their roosts to the ground was soft but powerful. They kept uttering their metallic, splintering call with its soft, ensuing chuckle. Far above, the falcons cried sharply and joyously, Ya-ya! The sun rose. Tiu-tiu! The yellowbird rejoiced. He flew to and fro among the branches, and his round yellow body flashed in the morning light 
like a winged ball of gold. Bambi walked under the great oak on the meadow. It sparkled with dew. It smelled of grass and flowers and moist earth and whispered of a thousand living things. Friend Hare was there and seemed to be thinking over something important. A haughty pheasant strutted slowly by, nibbling at the grass seeds and peering cautiously in all directions. The dark, metallic blue on his neck gleamed in the sun. One of the princes was standing close to Bambi. Bambi had never seen any of the fathers so close before. The stag was standing right in front of him, next to the hazel bush, and was somewhat hidden by the branches. Bambi did not move. He wanted the prince to come out completely, and was wondering whether he dared speak to him. He wanted to ask his mother and looked around for her. But his mother had already gone away and was standing some distance off beside Aunt Ina. At the same time, Gobo and Feline came running out of the woods. Bambi was still thinking it over, without stirring. If he went up to his mother and the others now, he would have to pass by the prince. He felt as if he couldn't do it. Oh well, he thought. I don't have to ask my mother first. The old prince spoke to me, and I didn't tell mother anything about it. I'll say, good morning, prince. He can't be offended at that. But if he does get angry, I'll run away fast. Bambi struggled with his resolve, which began to waver again. Presently, the prince walked out from behind the hazel bush onto the meadow. Now, thought Bambi, then there was a crash like thunder. Bambi shrank together and didn't know what had happened. He saw the prince leap into the air under his very nose and watched him rush past him into the forest with one great bound. Bambi looked around in a daze. The thunder still vibrated. He saw how his mother and Aunt Ina, Gobo and Feline fled into the woods. He saw how Friend Hare scurried away like mad. He saw the pheasant running with his neck outstretched. He noticed that the forest grew suddenly still. He started and sprang into the thicket. He had made only a few bounds when he saw the prince lying on the ground in front of him, motionless. Bambi stopped, horrified, not understanding what it meant. The prince lay bleeding from a great wound in his shoulder. He was dead. Don't stop! A voice beside commanded. It was his mother, who rushed past at full gallop. Run! she cried. Run as fast as you can! She did not slow up, but raced ahead, and her command brought Bambi after her. He ran with all his might. What is it, mother? he asked. What is it, mother? His mother answered between gasps. It was he. Bambi shuddered as they ran on. At last they stopped for lack of breath. What did you say? Tell me what it was you said, a soft voice called down from overhead. Bambi looked up. The squirrel came chattering through the branches. I ran the whole way with you, he cried. It was dreadful. Were you there? asked the mother. Of course I was there, the squirrel replied. I am still trembling in every limb, he sat erect, balancing with his splendid tail, displaying his small white chest, and holding his forepaws protestingly against his body. I'm beside myself with excitement, he said. I'm quite weak from fright myself, said the mother, 
I don't understand it. None of us saw a thing. Is that so? The squirrel said pettishly. I saw him long before. So did I. Another voice cried. It was the magpie. She flew past and settled on a branch. So did I. Came a croak from above. It was the jay who was sitting on an ash. A couple of crows in the treetops cawed harshly. We saw him too. They all sat around talking importantly. They were unusually excited and seemed to be full of anger and fear. Whom? Bambi thought. Whom did they see? I tried my best, the squirrel was saying, pressing his forepaws protestingly against his heart. I tried my best to warn the poor prince. And I, the jay rasped. How often did I scream? But he didn't care to hear me. He didn't hear me either, the magpie croaked. I called him at least ten times. I wanted to fly right past him. For, thought I, he hasn't heard me yet. I'll fly to the hazel bush where he's standing. He can't help hearing me there. But at that minute, it happened. My voice is probably louder than yours, and I warned him as well as I could, the crow said in an impudent tone. But gentlemen of that stamp pay little attention to the likes of us. Much too little, really, the squirrel agreed. Well, we did what we could, said the magpie. We are certainly not to blame when an accident happens. Such a handsome prince, the squirrel lamented, and in the very prime of life. Ah, croaked the jay. It would have been better for him if he hadn't been so proud and had paid more attention to us. He certainly wasn't proud. No more so than the other princes of his family, the magpie put in. Just plain stupid, sneered the jay. You're stupid yourself, the crow cried down from overhead. Don't you talk about stupidity. The whole forest knows how stupid you are. Pooch! I, replied the jay, stiff with astonishment. Nobody can accuse me of being stupid. I may be forgetful, but I'm certainly not stupid. Oh, just as you please, said the crow solemnly. Forget what I said to you, but remember that the prince did not die because he was proud or stupid, but because no one can escape him. Ah, croaked the jay. I don't like that kind of talk. He flew away. The crow went on. He has already outwitted many of my family. He kills what he wants. Nothing can help us. You have to be on your guard against him, the magpie broke in. You certainly do, said the crow sadly. Goodbye. He flew off, his family accompanying him. Bambi looked around. His mother was no longer there. What are they talking about now? thought Bambi. I can't understand what they are talking about. Who is this he they talk about? That was he, too, that I saw in the bushes. But he didn't kill me. Bambi thought of the prince lying in front of him, with his bloody, mangled shoulder. He was dead now. Bambi walked along. The forest sang again with a thousand voices. The sun pierced the treetops with its broad rays. There was light everywhere. The leaves began to smell. Far above, the falcons called. Close at hand, a woodpecker hammered as if nothing had happened. Bambi 
was not happy. He felt himself threatened by something dark. He did not understand how the others could be so carefree and happy while life was so difficult and dangerous. Then the desire seized him to go deeper and deeper into the woods. They lured him into their depths. He wanted to find some hiding place where, shielded on all sides by impenetrable thickets, he could never be seen. He never wanted to go to the meadow again. Something moved very softly in the bushes. Bambi drew back violently. The old stag was standing in front of him. Bambi trembled. He wanted to run away, but he controlled himself and remained. The old stag looked at him with his great, deep eyes and asked, Were you out there before? Yes, Bambi said softly. His heart was pounding in his throat. Where is your mother? asked the stag. Bambi answered still very softly. I don't know. The old stag kept gazing at him. And still, you're not calling for her? he said. Bambi looked into the noble, iron-gray face, looked at the stag's antlers, and suddenly felt full of courage. I can stay by myself, too, he said. The old stag considered him for a while. Then he asked gently, Aren't you the little one that was crying for his mother not long ago? Bambi was somewhat embarrassed, but his courage held. Yes, I am, he confessed. The old stag looked at him in silence, and it seemed to Bambi as if those deep eyes gazed still more mildly. You scolded me then, prince, he cried excitedly, because I was afraid of being left alone. Since then, I haven't been. The stag looked at Bambi appraisingly and smiled a very slight, hardly noticeable smile. Bambi noticed it, however. Noble prince, he asked confidently, what has happened? I don't understand it. Who is this he they are talking about? He stopped, terrified by the dark glance that bade him be silent. Another pause ensued. The old stag was gazing past Bambi into the distance. Then he said slowly, Listen, smell, and see for yourself. Find out for yourself. He lifted his antlered head still higher. Farewell. He said nothing else. Then he vanished. Bambi stood transfixed and wanted to cry. But that farewell still rang in his ears and sustained him. Farewell, the old stag had said. So he couldn't have been angry. Bambi felt himself thrill with pride, felt inspired with a deep earnestness. Yes, Life was difficult and full of danger, but come what might, he would learn to bear it all. He walked slowly deeper into the forest. Chapter 8 The leaves were falling from the great oak at the meadow's edge. 
They were falling from all the trees. One branch of the oak reached high above the others and stretched far out over the meadow. Two leaves clung to its very tip. It isn't the way it used to be, said one leaf to the other. No, the other leaf answered. So many of us have fallen off tonight. We're almost the only ones left on our branch. You never know who's going to go next, said the first leaf. Even when it was warm and the sun shone, a storm or a cloud burst would come sometimes, and many leaves were torn off, though they were still young. You never know who's going to go next. The sun seldom shines now, sighed the second leaf, and when it does, it gives no warmth. We must have warmth again. Can it be true, said the first leaf, can it really be true that others come to take our places when we're gone, and after them still other and more and more? It really is true, whispered the second leaf. We can't even begin to imagine it. It's beyond our powers. It makes me very sad out of the first leaf. They were silent for a while. Then the first leaf said quietly to herself, Why must we fall? The second leaf asked, What happens to us when we have fallen? We sink down. What is under us? The first leaf answered, I don't know. Some say one thing, some another. But nobody knows. The second leaf asked, Do we feel anything? Do we know anything about ourselves when we're down there? The first leaf answered, Who knows? Not one of all those down there has ever come back to tell us about it. They were silent again. Then the first leaf said tenderly to the other, Don't worry so much about it. You're trembling. That's nothing, the second leaf answered. I tremble at the least thing now. I don't feel so sure of my hold as I used to. Let's not talk any more about such things, said the first leaf. The other replied, No, we'll let be. But what else shall we talk about? She was silent, but went on after a little while. Which of us will go first? There's still plenty of time to worry about that, the other leaf assured her. Let's remember how beautiful it was, how wonderful, when the sun came out and shone so warmly that we thought we'd burst with life. Do you remember? And the morning dew, and the mild and splendid nights. Now the nights are dreadful, the second leaf complained and there is no end to them. We shouldn't complain, said the first leaf gently. We've outlived many, many others. Have I changed much? asked the second leaf shyly but determinedly. Not in the least, the first leaf assured her. You only think so because I've got to be so yellow and ugly, but it's different in your case. You're fooling me, the second leaf said. No, really, the first leaf exclaimed eagerly. Believe me, you're as lovely as the day you were born, 
Here and there may be a little yellow spot, but it's hardly noticeable and only makes you handsomer. Believe me. Thanks, whispered the second leaf, quite touched. I don't believe you, not altogether, but I thank you because you're so kind. You've always been so kind to me. I'm just beginning to understand how kind you are. Hush, said the other leaf, and kept silent herself, for she was too troubled to talk any more. Then they were both silent. Hours passed. A moist wind blew, cold and hostile, through the treetops. Oh, now, said the second leaf, I... Then her voice broke off. She was torn from her place and spun down. Winter had come. Chapter 9 Bambi noticed that the world was changed. It was hard for him to get used to this altered world. They had all lived like rich folk, and now had fallen upon hard times. For Bambi knew nothing but abundance. He took it for granted that he would always have plenty to eat. He thought he would never need to trouble about food. He believed he would always sleep in the lovely green-leafed glade where no one could see him, and would always go about in his smooth, handsome, glossy red coat. Now everything was changed, without his having noticed the change take place. The process that was ending had seemed only a series of episodes to him. It pleased him to see the milk-white veils of mist steam from the meadow in the morning or drop suddenly from the gray sky at dawn. They vanished so beautifully in the sunshine. The hoar-frost that covered the meadow with such dazzling whiteness delighted him too. Sometimes he liked to listen to his big cousins, the elks. The whole forest would tremble with their kingly voices. Bambi used to listen and be very much frightened, but his heart would beat high with admiration when he heard them calling. He remembered that the kings had antlers branching like tall, strong trees, and it seemed to him that their voices were as powerful as their antlers. Whenever he heard the deep tones of those voices, he would stand motionless. Their deep voices rolled towards him like the mighty moaning of noble, maddened blood, whose primal power was giving utterance to longing, rage, and pride. Bambi struggled in vain against his fears. They overpowered him whenever he heard those voices. But he was proud to have such noble relatives. At the same time, he felt a strange sense of annoyance because they were so unapproachable. It offended and humiliated him without his knowing exactly how or why, even without his being particularly conscious of it. It was only after the mating season had passed and the thunder of the stag's mighty voices had grown still, that Bambi began to notice other things once more. At night, when he roamed through the forest, or by day as he lay in the glade, he heard the falling leaves whisper among the trees. They fluttered and rustled ceaselessly through the air from all the treetops and branches. 
A delicate, silvery sound was falling constantly to earth. It was wonderful to awaken amidst it, wonderful to fall asleep to this mysterious and melancholy whispering. Soon the leaves lay thick and loose on the ground, and when you walked through them, they flew about, softly rustling. It was jolly to push them aside with every step. They were piled so high. It made a sound like shh, shh, soft and very clear and silvery. Besides, it was very useful, for Bambi had to be particularly careful these days to hear and smell everything. And with the leaves, you could hear everything far off. They rustled at the slightest touch and cried, Shh, shh. Nobody could steal through them. But then the rain came. It poured down from early morning till late at night. Sometimes it rained all night long and into the following day. It would stop for a while and begin again with fresh strength. The air was damp and cold. The whole world seemed full of rain. If you tried to nibble a little meadow grass, you got your mouth full of water, or if you tugged the least little bit at a bough, a whole torrent of water poured into your eyes and nose. The leaves no longer rustled. They lay pale and soggy on the ground, flattened by the rain, and made no sounds. Bambi discovered for the first time how unpleasant it is to be rained on all day and all night until you are soaked to the skin. There had not even been a frost yet, but he longed for the warm weather and felt it was a sad business to have to run around soaked through. But when the north wind blew, Bambi found out what cold is. It wasn't much help to nestle close to his mother. Of course, at first, he thought it was wonderful to lie there and keep one side warm at least. But the north wind raged through the forest all day and all night long. It seemed to be driven to madness by some incomprehensible ice-cold fury, as though it wanted to tear up the forest by its roots or annihilate it somehow. The trees groaned in stubborn resistance. They struggled mightily against the wind's fierce onslaught. You could hear their long-drawn moans, their sigh-like creakings, the loud snap when their strong limbs split, the angry cracking when now and again a trunk broke, and the vanquished tree seemed to shriek from every wound in its rent and dying body. Nothing else could be heard, for the storm swooped down still more fiercely on the forest, and its roaring drowned all lesser noises. Then, Bambi knew that want and hardship had come. He saw how much the rain and wind had changed the world. There was no longer a leaf on tree or shrub, but all stood there as though violated, their bodies naked for all to see, and they lifted their bare brown limbs to the sky for pity. The grass on the meadow was withered and shortened, as if it had sunk into the earth. Even the glade seemed wretched and bare. Since the leaves had fallen, it was no longer possible to lie so well hidden as before. The glade was open on all sides. One day, as a young magpie flew over the meadow, something cold and white fell in her eye. 
Then it fell again and again. She felt as if a little veil were drawn across her eye, while the small, pale, blinding white flakes danced around her. The magpie hesitated in her flight, fluttered a little, and then soared straight up into the air. In vain. The cold white flakes were everywhere and got into her eyes again. She kept flying straight up, soaring higher. Don't put yourself out too much, dearie, a crow who was flying above her in the same direction called down. Don't put yourself out too much. You can't fly high enough to get outside these flakes. This is snow. Snow? cried the magpie in surprise, struggling against a drizzle. That's about the size of it, said the crow. It's winter, and this is snow. Excuse me, the magpie replied, but I only left the nest in May. I don't know anything about winter. There are plenty in the same boat, the crow remarked, but you'll soon find out. Well, said the magpie, if this is snow, I guess I'll sit down for a while. She perched on an elder and shook herself. The crow flew awkwardly away. At first, Bambi was delighted with the snow. The air was calm and mild, while the white snow stars whirled down, and the world looked completely different. It had grown lighter, gayer, Bambi thought, and whenever the sun came out for a little while, everything shone, and the white covering flashed and sparkled so brightly that it blinded you. But Bambi soon stopped being pleased with the snow, for it grew harder and harder to find food. He had to paw the snow away with endless labor before he could find one withered little blade of grass. The snow crust cut his legs, and he was afraid of cutting his feet. Gobo had already cut his. Of course, Gobo was the kind who couldn't stand anything and was a constant source of trouble to his mother. The deer were always together now, and were much more friendly than before. Ina brought her children constantly. Lately, Marina, a half-grown doe, had joined the circle. But old Netla really contributed most to their entertainment. She was quite a self-sufficient person, and had her own ideas about everything. No, she would say, I don't bother with children any more. I've had enough of that particular joke. Feline asked, What difference does it make if they're a joke? And Netla would act as if she were angry and say, They're a bad joke, though, and I've had enough of them. They got along perfectly together. They would sit side by side gossiping. The young ones had never had a chance to hear so much. Even one or another of the princes would join them now. At first, things went somewhat stiffly, especially since the children were a little shy. But that soon changed, and they got along very well together. Bambi admired Prince Rano, who was a stately lord, and he passionately loved the handsome young Karus. They had dropped their horns, and Bambi often looked at the two slate-gray round spots that showed smooth and shimmering, with many delicate points on the prince's hands. They looked very noble. It was terribly interesting whenever one of the princes talked about him. 
Rano had a thick hide covering swelling on his left forefront. He limped on that foot and used to ask sometimes, Can you really see that I limp? Everyone would hasten to assure him that there was not the trace of a limp. That was what Rano wanted. And it really was hardly noticeable. Yes, he would go on. I saved myself from a tight corner that time. And then Rano would tell how he had surprised him and hurled his fire at him, but it had only struck his leg. It had driven him nearly mad with pain, and no wonder, since the bone was shattered. But Rano did not lose his head. He was up and away on three legs. He pressed on in spite of his weakness, for he saw that he was being pursued. He ran without stopping until night came. Then he gave himself a rest. But he went on the next morning until he felt he was in safety. Then he took care of himself, living alone in hiding, waiting for his wound to heal. At last, he came out again and was a hero. He limped, but he thought no one noticed it. They were often together now for long periods and told many stories. Bambi heard more about him than ever before. They told how terrible he was to look at. No one could bear to look at his pale face. Bambi knew that already from his own experience. They spoke too about his smell, and again Bambi could have spoken if he had not been too well brought up to mix in his elders' conversation. They said that his smell differed each time in a hundred subtle ways, and yet you could tell it in an instant, for it was always exciting, unfathomable, mysterious, and terrible. They told how he used only two legs to walk with, and they spoke of the amazing strength of his two hands. Some of them did not know what hands were, but when it was explained, old Netla said, I don't see anything so surprising in that. A squirrel can do everything you tell about just as well, and every little mouse can perform the same wonders. She turned away her head disdainfully. Oh, no, cried the others, and they gave her to understand that those were not the same things at all. But old Netla was not to be cowed. What about the falcon? she exclaimed, and the buzzard, and the owl. They've only got two legs, and when they want to catch something, they simply stand on one leg and grab with the other. That's much harder, and he certainly can't do that. Old Netla was not at all inclined to admire anything connected with him. She hated him with all her heart. He is loathsome, she said, and she stuck to that. Besides, nobody contradicted her, since nobody liked him. But the talk grew more complicated when they told how he had a third hand, not two hands merely, but a third hand. That's an old story, Netla said curtly. I don't believe it. Is that so? Rano broke in. Then what did he shatter my leg with? Can you tell me that? Old Netla answered carelessly. That's your affair, my dear. He's never shattered any of mine. Aunt Ina said, I've seen a good deal in my time, and I think there's something in the story that he has a third hand. I agree with you, young Karus said politely. I have a friend, a crow. He paused, embarrassed for a moment, and looked around at them, 
one after the other, as though he were afraid of being laughed at. But when he saw that they were listening attentively to him, he went on. This crow is unusually well-informed, I must say that, surprisingly well-informed, and she says that he really has three hands, but not always. The third hand is the bad one, the crow says. It isn't attached like the other two, but he carries it hanging over his shoulder. The crow says that she can always tell exactly when he or anyone like him is going to be dangerous. If he comes without the third hand, he isn't dangerous. Old Netla laughed. Your crow's a blockhead, my dear Karus, she said. Tell her so for me. If she were as clever as she thinks she is, she'd know that he's always dangerous. Always. But the others had different objections. Bambi's mother said, Some of them aren't dangerous. You can see that at a glance. Is that so? Old Netla asked. I suppose you stand still till they come up to you and wish you a good day. Bambi's mother answered gently, Of course I don't stand still. I run away. And Feline broke in with, You should always run away. Everybody laughed. But when they talked about the third hand, they became serious, and fear grew on them gradually. For whatever it might be, a third hand or something else, it was terrible, and they did not understand it. They only knew of it from other stories. Few of them had ever seen it for themselves. He would stand still, far off, and never move. You couldn't explain what he did, or how it happened, but suddenly there would be a crash like thunder. Fire would shoot out, and far away from him, you would drop down dying with your breast torn open. They all sat bowed while they talked about him, as though they felt the presence of some dark, unknown power controlling them. They listened curiously to the many stories that were always horrible, full of blood and suffering. They listened tirelessly to everything that was said about him, tales that were certainly invented, all the stories and sayings that had come down from their fathers and great-grandfathers. In each one of them, they were unconsciously seeking for some way to propitiate this dark power, or some way to escape it. What difference does it make, young Karus said, quite despondently, how far away he is when he kills you? Didn't your clever crow explain that to you? Old Netla mocked. No, said Karus with a smile. She says that she's often seen him, but no one can explain him. Yes, he knocks the crows out of the trees too, when he wants to, Rano observed. And he brings down the pheasant on the wing, Aunt Ina added. Bambi's mother said, He throws his hand at you. My grandmother told me so. Is that so? asked old Netla. What is it that bangs so terribly then? That's when he tears his hand off, Bambi's mother explained. Then the fire flashes and the thunder cracks. He's all fire inside. Excuse me, said Rano. It's true that he's all fire inside. But that about his hand is wrong. A hand couldn't make such wounds. You can see that for yourself. 
it's much more likely that it's a tooth he throws at us. A tooth would explain a great many things, you know. You really die from his bite. Will he never stop hunting us? Young Kara sighed. Then Marina spoke. The young half-grown doe. They say that sometime he'll come to live with us and be as gentle as we are. He'll play with us then and the whole forest will be happy and we'll be friends with him. Old Natla burst out laughing. Let him stay where he is and leave us in peace, she said. Aunt Ina said reprovingly, You shouldn't talk that way. And why not? Old Nettler replied hotly. I really don't see why not. Friends with him? He's murdered us ever since we can remember. Every one of us. Our sisters, our mothers, our brothers. Ever since we came into the world, he's given us no peace, but has killed us wherever we showed our heads. And now we're going to be friends with him? What nonsense! Marina looked at all of them out of her big, calm, shining eyes. Love is no nonsense, she said. It has to come. Old Nettler turned away. I'm going to look for something to eat, she said, and trotted off. Chapter 10 Winter dragged on. Sometimes it was warmer, but then the snow would fall again and lie deeper and deeper, so that it became impossible to scrape it away. It was worst when the thaws came, and the melted snow water froze again in the night. Then there was a thin, slippery film of ice. Often it broke in pieces, and the sharp splinters cut the deer's tender fetlocks till they bled. A heavy frost had set in several days before. The air was purer and rarer than it had ever been, and full of energy. It began to hum in a very fine high tone. It hummed with the cold. It was silent in the woods, but something horrible happened every day. Once the crows fell upon Friend Hare's small son, who was lying sick, and killed him in a cruel way. He could be heard moaning pitifully for a long while. Friend Hare was not at home, and when he heard the sad news, he was beside himself with grief. Another time the squirrel raced about with a great wound in his neck, where the ferret had caught him. By a miracle the squirrel had escaped. He could not talk because of the pain, but he ran up and down the branches. Everyone could see him. He ran like mad. From time to time he stopped, sat down, raised his forepaws desperately and clutched his head in terror and agony while the red blood oozed on his white chest. He ran about for an hour, then suddenly crumpled up, fell across a branch, and dropped dead in the snow. A couple of magpies flew down at once to begin their meal. Another day a fox tore to pieces the strong and handsome pheasant who had enjoyed such general respect and popularity. His death aroused the sympathies of a wide circle who tried to comfort his disconsolate widow. The fox had dragged the pheasant out of the snow where he was buried, thinking himself well hidden. No one could have felt safer than the pheasant, 
for it all happened in broad daylight. The terrible hardship that seemed to have no end spread bitterness and brutality. It destroyed all their memories of the past, their faith in each other, and ruined every good custom they had. There was no longer either peace or mercy in the forest. It's hard to believe that it will ever be better, Bambi's mother sighed. And Ina sighed too. It's hard to believe that it was ever any better, she said. And yet, Marina said, looking in front of her, I always think how beautiful it was before her. Look, old Nettler said to Aunt Ina, your little one is trembling, she pointed to Gobo. Does he always tremble like that? Yes, Aunt Ina answered gravely. He's shivered that way for the last few days. Well, said old Nettler in her frank way, I'm glad that I have no more children. If that little one were mine, I'd wonder if he'd last out the winter. The future really didn't look very bright for Gobo. He was weak. He'd always been much more delicate than Bambi or Feline, and remained smaller than either of them. He was growing worse from day to day. He could not eat even the little food there was. It made his stomach ache and he was quite exhausted by the cold and by the horrors around him. He shivered more and more and could hardly stand up. Everyone looked at him sympathetically. Old Nettler went up to him and nudged him good-naturedly. Don't be sad, she said encouragingly. That's no way for a little prince to act, and besides, it's unhealthy. She turned away so that no one should see how moved she was. Rano, who had settled himself a little to one side in the snow, suddenly sprang up. I don't know what it is, he mumbled and gazed around. Everyone grew watchful. What is it? they asked. I don't know, Rano repeated. But I'm restless. I suddenly felt restless as if something were wrong. Karus was snuffing the air. I don't smell anything strange, he declared. They all stood still, listening and snuffing the air. It's nothing, there's absolutely nothing to smell, they agreed one after another. Nevertheless, Rano insisted, you can say what you like, something is wrong. Marina said, the crows are calling. There they go calling again, Feline added quickly but the others had already heard them. They are flying, said Karus and the others. Everybody looked up. High above the treetops, a flock of crows flapped by. They came from the farthest edge of the forest, the direction from which danger always came, and they were complaining to one another. Apparently something unusual had happened. Wasn't I right? asked Rano. You can see that something is happening. What shall we do? Bambi's mother whispered anxiously. Let's get away, Aunt Ina urged in alarm. Wait, Rano commanded. But the children, Aunt Ina replied. The children, Gobo can't run. Go ahead, Rano agreed. Go off with your children. I don't think there's any need for it, but I don't blame you for going. He was alert and serious. Come, Gobo, come, Feline. 
Softly now, go slowly, and keep behind me. And Ina warned them. She slipped away with her children. Time passed. They stood still, listening and trembling. As if we hadn't suffered enough already, old Nettla began. We still have this to go through. She was very angry. Bambi looked at her, and he felt that she was thinking of something horrible. Three or four magpies had already begun to chatter on the side of the thicket from which the crows had come. Look out! Look out! 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 they cried. The deer could not see them, but could hear them calling and warning each other. Sometimes one of them, and sometimes all of them together, would cry, Look out! 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 Then they came nearer. They fluttered in terror from tree to tree, peered back and fluttered away again in fear and alarm. Ah! cried the jays. They screamed their warning loudly. Suddenly all the deer shrank together at once, as though a blow had struck them. Then they stood still, snuffing the air. It was he. A heavy wave of scent blew past. There was nothing they could do. The scent filled their nostrils, it numbed their senses, and made their hearts stop beating. The magpies were still chattering, the jays were still screaming overhead. In the woods around them everything had sprung to life. The titmice flitted through the branches, like tiny feathered balls, chirping, Run! Run! The blackbirds fled swiftly and darkly above them, with long-drawn twittering cries. Through the dark tangle of bare bushes, they saw on the white snow a wild, aimless scurrying of smaller, shadowy creatures. These were the pheasants. Then a flash of red streaked by. That was the fox. But no one was afraid of him now, for that fearful scent kept streaming on in a wider wave, sending terror into their hearts and uniting them all in one mad fear, in a single feverish impulse to flee, to save themselves. That mysterious, overpowering scent filled the woods with such strength that they knew that this time he was not alone, but had come with many others, and there would be no end to the killing. They did not move. They looked at the titmice, whisking away in a sudden flutter, at the blackbirds and the squirrels, who dashed from treetop to treetop in mad bounds. They knew that all the little creatures on the grounds had nothing to fear, but they understood their flight when they smelt him for no forest creature could bear his presence. Presently friend Hare hopped up. He hesitated, sat still, and then hopped on again. What is it? Karis called after him impatiently. But friend Hare only looked around with bewildered eyes and could not even speak. He was completely terrified. What's the use of asking? said Rano gloomily. Friend Hare gasped for breath. We are surrounded he said in a lifeless voice. We can't escape on any side. He is everywhere. At the same instant they heard his voice, twenty or thirty strong. He cried, <laughs> It roared like the sound of winds and storms. He beat on the tree trunks as though they were drums. It was racking and terrifying. A distant twisting and rending of parted bushes rang out, there was a snapping and cracking of broken boughs. He was coming. He was coming into the heart of the thicket. Then, short, 
whistling flute-like trills sounded together with the loud flap of soaring wings. A pheasant rose from under his very feet. The deer heard the wing-beats of the pheasant grow fainter as he mounted into the air. There was a loud crash like thunder. Then silence. Then a dull thud on the ground. He is dead, said Bambi's mother, trembling. The first, Rano added. The young doe Marina said, In this very hour many of us are going to die. Perhaps I shall be one of them. No one listened to her, for a mad terror had seized them all. Bambi tried to think, but his savage noises grew louder and louder and paralyzed Bambi's senses. He heard nothing but those noises. They numbed him while amidst the howling, shouting, and crashing, he could hear his own heart pounding. He felt nothing but curiosity, and did not even realize that he was trembling in every limb. From time to time his mother whispered in his ear, Stay close to me. She was shouting, but in the uproar it sounded to Bambi as if she were whispering. Her, Stay close to me, encouraged him. It was like a chain holding him. Without it, he would have rushed off senselessly, and he heard it at the very moment when his wits were wandering and he wanted to dash away. He looked around. All sorts of creatures were swarming past, scampering blindly over one another. A pair of weasels ran by like thin, snake-like streaks. The eye could scarcely follow them. A ferret listened, as though bewitched to every shriek that desperate friend Hare let out. A fox was standing in a whole flurry of fluttering pheasants. They paid no attention to him. They ran right under his nose, and he paid no attention to them. Motionless, with his head thrust forward, he listened to the onrushing tumult, lifting his pointed ears and snuffed the air with his nose. Only his tail moved, slowly wagging with his intense concentration. A pheasant dashed up. He had come from where the danger was worst and was beside himself with fear. Don't try to fly, he shouted to the others. Don't fly, just run. Don't lose your head. Don't try to fly, just run, run, run. He kept repeating the same thing over and over again, as though to encourage himself, but he no longer knew what he was saying. <laughs> Came the death cry from quite near, apparently. Don't lose your head, screamed the pheasant, and at the same time his voice broke in a whistling gasp, and spreading his wings, he flew up with a loud whirr. Bambi watched how he flew straight up, directly between the trees, beating his wings. The dark metallic blue and greenish-brown markings on his body gleamed like gold. His long tail feathers swept proudly behind him. A short crash like thunder sounded sharply. The pheasant suddenly crumpled up in mid-flight. He turned head over tail, as though he wanted to catch his claws with his beak, and then dropped violently to earth. He fell among the others and did not move again. Then everyone lost his senses. They all rushed toward one another. Five or six pheasants rose at one time with a loud whirr. Don't fly! cried the rest and ran. The thunder cracked five or six times, and more of the flying birds dropped lifeless to the ground. Come, said Bambi's mother. Bambi looked around. Rano and Karas had already fled. Old Netla was disappearing. Only Marina was still beside them. Bambi went with his mother, Marina following them timidly. All around them was a roaring and shouting, 
and the thunder was crashing. Bambi's mother was calm. She trembled quietly, but she kept her wits together. Bambi, my child, she said, keep behind me all the time. We have to get out of here and across the open place, but now we'll go slowly. The din was maddening. The thunder crashed ten, twelve times as he hurled it from his hands. Watch out, said Bambi's mother. Don't run. But when we have to cross the open place, run as fast as you can. And don't forget, Bambi, my child, don't pay any attention to me when we get out there. Even if I fall, don't pay any attention to me. Just keep on running. Do you understand, Bambi? His mother walked carefully, step by step, amidst the uproar. The pheasants were running up and down, burying themselves in the snow. Suddenly they would spring out again and begin to run again. The whole hare family was hopping to and fro, squatting down and then hopping again. No one said a word. They were all spent with terror and numbed by the din and thunderclaps. It grew lighter in front of Bambi and his mother. The clearing showed through the bushes. Behind them, the terrifying drumming on the tree trunks came crashing nearer and nearer. The breaking branches snapped. There was a roaring of... <laughs> then Friend Hare and two of his cousins rushed past them across the clearing. Bing! Bing! Bang! roared the thunder. Bambi saw how Friend Hare struck an elder in the middle of his flight and lay with his white belly turned upward. He quivered a little and then was still. Bambi stood petrified. But from behind him came the cry, Here they are! Run! Run! There was a loud clapping of wings suddenly opened. There were gasps, sobs, showers of feathers, flutterings. The pheasants took wing and the whole flock rose almost at one instant. The air was throbbing with repeated thunderclaps and the dull thuds of the fallen and the high, piercing shrieks of those who had escaped. Bambi heard steps and looked behind him. He was there. He came bursting through the bushes on all sides. He sprang up everywhere, struck about him, beat the bushes, drummed on the tree trunks, and shouted with a fiendish voice. Now, said Bambi's mother, get away from here, and don't stay too close to me. She was off with a bound that barely skimmed the snow. Bambi rushed out after her. The thunder crashed around them on all sides. It seemed as if the earth would split in half, Bambi saw nothing. He kept running. A growing desire to get away from the tumult and out of reach of that scent which seemed to strangle him. The growing impulse to flee, the longing to save himself, were loosed in him at last. He ran. It seemed to him as if he saw his mother hit, but he did not know if it was really she or not. He felt a film come over his eyes from fear of the thunder crashing behind him. It had gripped him completely at last. He could think of nothing or see nothing around him. He kept running. The open space was crossed. Another thicket took him in. The hue and cry still rang behind him. The sharp reports still thundered, and in the branches above him there was a light pattering, like the first fall of hail. Then it grew quieter. Bambi kept running. A dying pheasant, with its neck twisted, lay on the snow, beating feebly with its wings. When he heard Bambi coming, he ceased his convulsive movements and whispered, It's all over with me. Bambi paid no attention to him and ran on. 
A tangle of bushes he blundered into forced him to slacken his pace and look for a path. He pawed the ground impatiently with his hoofs. This way, called someone with a gasping voice. Bambi obeyed involuntarily and found an opening at once. Someone moved feebly in front of him. It was friend Hare's wife who had called. Can you help me a little? She sat. Bambi looked at her and shuddered. Her hind leg dangled lifelessly in the snow, dyeing it red and melting it with warm, oozing blood. Can you help me a little? She repeated. She spoke as if she were well and whole, almost as if she were happy. I don't know what can have happened to me, she went on. There's really no sense to it, but I just can't seem to walk. In the middle of her words, she rolled over on her side and died. Bambi was seized with horror again and ran. Bambi! He stopped with a jolt. A deer was calling him. Again he heard the cry. Is that you, Bambi? Bambi saw Gobo floundering helplessly in the snow. All his strength was gone. He could no longer stand on his feet. He lay there half-buried and lifted his head feebly. Bambi went up to him excitedly. Where's your mother, Gobo? he asked, gasping for breath. Where's Feline? Bambi spoke quickly and impatiently. Terror still gripped his heart. Mother and Feline had to go on, Gobo answered resignedly. He spoke softly, but as seriously and as well as a grown deer. They had to leave me here. I fell down. You must go on too, Bambi. Get up, cried Bambi. Get up, Gobo! You've rested long enough. There's not a minute to lose now. Get up and come with me. No. Leave me, Gobo answered quietly. I can't stand up. It's impossible. I'd like to, but I'm too weak. What will happen to you? Bambi persisted. I don't know. Probably I'll die, said Gobo simply. The uproar began again and re-echoed. New crashes of thunder followed. Bambi shrank together. Suddenly a branch snapped. Young Karus pounded swiftly through the snow, galloping ahead of the din. Run! he called when he saw Bambi. Don't stand there if you can run! He was gone in a flash, and his headlong flight carried Bambi along with it. Bambi was hardly aware that he had begun to run again, and only after an interval did he say, Goodbye, Gobo but he was already too far away. Gobo could no longer hear him. He ran till nightfall through the woods that was filled with shouting and thunder. As darkness closed in, it grew quiet. Soon a light wind carried away the horrible scent that spread everywhere, but the excitement remained. The first friend whom Bambi saw again was Rano. He was limping more than ever, over in the oak grove, the fox has a burning fever from his wound, Rano said. I just passed him. He's suffering terribly. He keeps biting the snow and the ground. Have you seen my mother? asked Bambi. No, answered Rano evasively, and walked quickly away. Later during the night, Bambi met old Netla with Feline. All three were delighted to meet. Have you seen my mother? asked Bambi. No, 
Feline answered. I don't even know where my own mother is. Well, said old Netta cheerfully, here's a nice mess. I was so glad that I didn't have to bother with children any more, and now I have to look after two at once. I'm heartily grateful. Bambi and Feline laughed. They talked about Gobo. Bambi told how he had found him, and they grew so sad they began to cry. But old Netla would not have them crying. Before everything else, you have got to get something to eat. I never heard of such a thing. You haven't had a bite to eat this live-long day. She led them to places where there was still a few leaves that had not completely withered. Old Netla was wonderfully gentle. She ate nothing herself, but made Bambi and Feline eat heartily. She pawed away the snow from the grassy spots and ordered them to eat with, The grass is good here. Or else she would say, No, wait, we'll find something better farther on. But between whiles she would grumble, It's perfectly ridiculous the trouble children give you. Suddenly they saw Aunt Ina coming and rushed towards her. Aunt Ina! cried Bambi. He had seen her first. Feline was beside herself with joy and bounded around her. Mother! she cried. But Ina was weeping and nearly dead from exhaustion. Gobo is gone, she cried. I've looked for him. I went to the little place where he lay when he broke down in the snow. There was nothing there. He is gone. My poor little Gobo. Old Nettler grumbled. If you had looked for his tracks, it would have been more sensible than crying, she said. There weren't any tracks, said Antina, but his tracks were there. He found Gobo. She was silent. Then Bambi asked despondently, Antina, have you seen my mother? No, answered Aunt Ina gently. Bambi never saw his mother again. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Bambi Part 2 of 4 by Felix Salton. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Thank you.